Well, there's our uh, venue across campus, our chapel next door, and then our Mountain Valley campus and Cactus campus. Join us for our time in the Word. Uh, let's all, as, as multiple congregations, one body, let's bow together in prayer. God, we are grateful for the worship that we have had that has focused us upon you, that has hopefully enlivened our hearts toward you. At the very least, God, we've been challenged over the last half hour to um, think of you and of your goodness, your glory, your love, and your revelation in Jesus, and now the power of the Spirit. And so we pray, God, that as we've hopefully been prepared now to receive your truth, that receive it we will, and that, Lord, as we open up to the words of Jesus, that you would penetrate each and every one of our hearts, that there would not be one person here uh, or in our campuses and venues or watching online that escapes uh, what you want to say to us today. So God, speak, we pray. Use your word, we pray. In Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. amen. So let's do a little bit of participation to get us started here in our time in the Word this morning. And uh, to do that, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to raise your hand in just a minute uh, in response to this question. And the question is, how many of you have ever used any form of a GPS? So it be Google Maps, Apple Maps, uh, maybe a GPS in your car, one of those little Garmin units. Raise your hand if you've ever used uh, a GPS. Okay. I, I mean, I, I expected that. Just about every one of you. My mom and dad are 80 and 82 this year, and as of a year ago, they had never used a GPS in their life. They'd heard of it. They'd seen it like on James Bond movies and things like that, but they've <laughs> never used one. And mom was getting lost in her car about three miles from home, and so uh, she asked me to install a GPS in her car, and I did, and it's revolutionized their life. Uh, if mom gets lost, she just hits home, and this woman speaks to her and guides her home, and she loves that. The technology behind GPS is, uh, is actually fascinating. As many of you know, it uses longitude and latitude, right? It's not really finding the town of Yuma. It, 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 behind the scenes, it's coded so that Yuma has a longitude and latitude. I wouldn't know what it is, but say 113.5 longitude and 205.7 uh, latitude, and it finds that through the GPS and then directs you uh, on the street. And, and it really is amazing technology. Why is that important? I want you to think about what would happen if you were off by a mere one degree in traveling anywhere. Uh, if you're off by just one degree longitude or latitude or both. I did some study on this this summer. If you are flying from JFK Airport to LAX Airport across the country and your plane is off by one degree, you will land 40 miles into the Pacific Ocean. That's how much being off by one degree would affect just that airplane ride. If you're flying in a rocket to the moon and you're off by one degree, you'll miss the moon by 4,169 miles. If you extended that rocket trip and decided to go to the sun and you're off by that still small one degree, you'd miss the sun by 1.6 million miles. And then if you wanted to go to the nearest star and kept going and you're off by just that small one degree, you would miss the nearest, nearest star by 441 billion miles. Here's what hits me about this idea of being off by one degree is that initially it doesn't make much of a difference, right? If you're off by one degree and you're driving across the country, you wouldn't feel it right away. 
But by the time you got to the other side of the country, you'd be in the Pacific Ocean 40 miles. By the time you got to the moon, you'd be thousands of miles off. And the reality is that over time, given enough distance, being off by one degree can make a significant difference when it comes to your destination. And what Jesus is going to show us in this new series that we're starting today is that the same is true of our spiritual lives. We're going to call this series Adjustments. Adjustments. It's based on one chapter in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. We're making our way slowly and methodically through John here at our church, and we do some other series interspersed uh, between them. But we're back to John now, and we're going to spend six weeks in one chapter here in John chapter 12. And I tell you, this is a really powerful and interesting chapter most people don't know this, but John has 21 chapters in it. Chapter 12 comprises the last of Jesus's public teachings and interactions in the entire book. As soon as chapter 13 comes, it's, it's, it's time with the disciples, and then he'll have time with the Roman authorities and, and such, but he won't have any more public time interacting with and teaching the people. So one commentator calls chapter 12 Jesus' farewell address to the world. Because <laughs> that's really what it is. It's his last shot at helping people understand him and the kingdom. And when you look closely at chapter 12 and all the things going on here, as I did this summer, uh, you realize that there are no less than six major adjustments as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, six major adjustments that he wants the people to go through in their thinking and behaving. Six major, but you're going to see rather subtle adjustments that involve really changing our thinking and behaving by about one degree. But if you ever thought one degree could make such a huge difference, you're going to see that in this series. And you're going to like uh, the topics we look at in this series. Jesus is obviously going to be our guide. And we begin today with the very first adjustment. And it has to do with how we approach our giving. And I know how some of you think. Man, the second you saw that I was talking about giving, like on the website or when you walked in today, you're thinking, oh, no, I don't want him to talk about giving. I mean, it's another sermon on money. No, it's not. Because you see, the way that Jesus is going to use giving in our story here today doesn't just involve money. It's going to involve your time, your talents, and yes, your treasures. But it's this whole idea of whenever you give yourself, to anyone or anything this side of heaven, how do you do that? What kind of posture and focus and direction should you and I have? That's what Jesus is going to help us adjust on. And I think you're going to like it. So let's read the first eight verses of John 12. If you didn't bring your own Bible, which is ideal, if you didn't bring that, then the scripture is on your outline, as well as I'll put it up here on the monitor so that we can all get in front of the word of God. John 12, verses one through eight, I'm gonna read it now. And see as I'm reading this, is if you can pick up on what Jesus is trying to help them adjust with when it comes to giving. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, we're going to do a deep dive into this story here today, and I'll tell you why. There is so much going on here for our lives today that we need to understand some of the intricacies going on here and the profundity that is found in it. So obviously this story is taking place on the outskirts of Jerusalem, just due east, in a little town called Bethany. That's important because Bethany was a town that, in which Jesus' three closest friends lived in outside of the disciples, and that was Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Lazarus, you might remember, is the guy that Jesus raised from the dead, which I would submit to you would cement any lifelong friendship. And Matthew and Mark tell us in their rendering of this account, because Matthew and Mark tell us the same story, that they were at the home of Simon the leper. And Martha is playing hostess. You gotta love that. If you know anything about your Bible stories, Martha is that one who was really good at playing hostess and got all upset that her sister Mary was a slacker and didn't help her with playing hostess. And here she is again, still playing hostess. Lazarus, being the man in that culture, was at the table reclining with the other men. I know some of you don't like that, but that's the way it was back then. And then Mary, and this is the point of it all, is sitting intently focused upon Jesus. I mean, she's still doing her thing, focused on Jesus. And at one point, Mary shocks everybody and takes a very costly bottle of perfume. It says it was made of pure nard. When I first read that years ago, I thought, they made perfume out of lard? I thought, that's gross. And until I studied it, and, and, and nard was actually the spike nard plant, an imported plant found mainly in India, China, and Nepal, very rare in the Middle East. And she takes about a pound of this very expensive oil, about 12 to 16 ounces, and she begins to anoint Jesus with it. John tells us she anointed his feet. Matthew and Mark tell us she anointed his head. So how do you make sense of that? Well, she anointed all of him. <laughs> and she probably started with the head because that's what they did in that culture back then. It was a, a sign, the anointing of, of saying you're important. They, they did it for royalty, people like that. It was a way to show love and care by, by taking anointing oil upon somebody, even had healing properties, life properties. But Mary does something really strange. She actually wipes it on his feet and uses her hair to wipe his, his feet. A sign of submission and humility as Jesus will show us in John chapter 13 when he engages in foot washing. And so picture this scene. This is really important. I like how one commentator describes it. He says, and I quote, you got a stooped body, cascading hair, and poured out oil. It's a very personal act that Mary is engaging in here, an act of submission, of love and care for Jesus. That will be very important for us here in just a minute. And it's right at this point that one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, chimes in and points out that this perfume could have been sold because it was very expensive for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. 
A denarius back then was a Roman coin or piece of currency. And a denarius, just one of them, was the average wage for an average day's work back then. And so 300 denarii, take out the Sabbath days, which was their day off, would actually be about a year's worth of wages for an average worker. And so that was a lot of money back then. And Judas is saying, man, you know, this is an, a whole year's worth of salary in this bottle of perfume. I tried to think what that would be like today. I mean, if you were to take minimum wage, which is eight bucks an hour here in Arizona, and multiply it by 40 hours, 52 weeks, you get about $16,000. Or say maybe a day laborer is making 12 bucks an hour, it'd be closer to, you know, maybe $24,000 a year. So then when I figured that out, 24,000 bucks a year, I thought, do they even make perfume that costs 24,000 bucks for a bottle? What's the answer to that? Yeah, they really do. If you were to Google this, as I did this week, and look up the top-selling perfumes in the world, number six, it's not the most expensive, is Clive Christian number one. Anybody wearing that here today? <laughs> Anybody willing to admit they're wearing that today? Clive Christian number one costs about $2,000 an ounce, and so 12 ounces would be about 24,000 bucks. There's our image. Mary had a bottle of Clive Christian number one in her day. And she was taking this very expensive bottle of perfume. Now picture this and dumping it on Jesus's head. That's not the intent of that perfume. She was doing that. And then she's wiping her, his feet with her hair. And Judas is responding by saying, what are you doing? This is an expensive bottle of perfume. This could be used to minister to the poor. And though John is quick to point out here in verse 6 that Judas's motives were not pure, that he was a thief, that he used to pill for money, that he was the one who was going to betray Jesus. What we need to see for our purposes, and this is rich, John doesn't point this out, but the other two uh, gospel writers do, is that it was not just Judas who thought this way, but all the disciples agreed with Judas here, and even most, if not some, of all the other people in the room. Uh, look at how Matthew says it to us in his telling of this story. He says, but the disciples were indignant when they saw this, Mary anointing Jesus, and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Isn't that interesting? It wasn't just Judas, it was all the disciples. And then Mark, in his retelling, says, but some were indignant, remarking to one another. Uh, so that includes even other people involved there. And, and so Judas did indeed have ill motives for his comments here, but let's not miss the other disciples who were not going to be thieves, who were not going to be betrayers, they felt the same. They all had a problem with Mary's gifts. And certainly they were not all thieves and betrayers. And Jesus has had enough. He's gonna rebuke them all. He says at this point, let her alone. And then Mark and Matthew add that he says, she has done a good thing to me. And the reason that it's a good thing is that this fragrance is gonna stay with him all through his last week on earth. And it's gonna take him into his burial. And maybe she still has some left. It was an alabaster jar, Matthew and Mark tell us, and she broke it. But maybe there's still some left because he says, use the rest of it for my burial. 
And so Jesus is saying this was a good gift, a right-focused gift. He approved of it over and against any other focus. And we know that he approved of it because he even answers that, let's give it to the poor thing. He ends the story by saying that you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me, meaning him in the flesh on this earth. And though many have tried to use that passage and and I think wrong ways, they've tried to use that passage to say, see, Jesus said we don't always have to minister to the poor. That's not what Jesus was saying. Not at all. In fact, he's quoting Deuteronomy here, the Old Testament, in which the original context of that passage says, you'll always have the poor with you, so you should always be ministering to them. That's what Jesus is affirming here. All Jesus is saying, now don't miss this, is that there is an initial focus and direction on how we should give, and it involves him. And once it involves him, everything else is going to fall into place. That's what he's underlining here. And this brings us to the adjustment, gang. I want to give it to you right now because it's not complicated. I just think it's life-changing. And I'm going to show you how this adjustment is seen in this scene here. And then we're going to wrap up with a couple of stories that I think will bring this home to us. But this is the adjustment once we understand the story. And that is that Jesus is helping us go from need-based giving to God-based giving. That's the adjustment. Very subtle, one degree of separation, but very important. Need-based giving versus God-based giving. Now, now what's that about? I want you to think about this scene with me. This is a really, really rich and wonderful scene. If you were tracking with me during my explanation of it, you have three primary players. Do you remember who they are? Jesus, Mary, and Judas. But as we've already established, Judas represents all the others in their collective thinking. And the tension in this story, every good story has a tension. The tension in this story, because it's thick, is between Mary's giving to Jesus and then Judas, again, representing everybody else, his thoughts on what giving should be. So the tension is between Mary focused on Jesus giving to him and then Judas representing everybody else saying, no, we should be giving this to the poor. That's the tension here. In other words, Judas and the disciples' view was that giving should be first and foremost need-based, right? You got a bottle of expensive perfume and you should sell it and give it to the poor. The need is before you and it's our humanitarian job to meet it. That's the way that they thought giving should always be. And it's certainly not a bad way to approach giving. In fact, it's the way that the vast majority of well-meaning Americans today approach their giving, right? We're taught that from when we were little guys and gals. We should give of ourselves. You ought to identify a need in culture and go out and meet it. It's our civic duty. It's how we help society. Even in Sunday school, we teach it to our kids. And again, it's not a bad way to give, and it's center stage in the mind of Judas and the rest. But Mary has a very subtle different view of giving herself. She first approached her giving by directing it to Jesus as God come in the flesh. She had a resource, an expensive bottle of perfume, and she wanted to present it first and foremost to Jesus as savior and deliverer. She's just like the wise men at Jesus' birth. Remember them? Bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought very costly gifts to give to Jesus. And that's what she's following, that pattern. And I'm telling you, this is what we're going to call God-based giving. And here's the thing that might help us understand this. This does not mean that Mary 
or anybody else following her pattern is negating or dismissing the people needs before them, not at all. It just means that the foundation, the priority, the focus of their giving is going to be toward God. And then they're going to let God direct how that gift should be used. And I would submit to you that there's something really rich in this. I mean, to be sure, we know that Jesus was going to take Mary's gift and use it for a different purpose than she intended. Did you pick up on that in this story here? In other words, what did Jesus say he was going to use this gift for? For his burial, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you think Mary knew that when she gave it to him? No. I mean, we've read ahead. We know what's going to happen. This is a week before Jesus' crucifixion. They actually thought the opposite. They thought he was going to be anointed king in Israel. That he was going to take over Jerusalem and set up shop just like King David did. That's what they expected. So she's anointing him, saying, here, here, here's the most expensive gift I could give you. Remember me when you're king. And he says, you've done the right thing. Thanks for giving it to me. I think I'm going to use this for my death. <laughs> and you got to believe Mary's going, well, that's not quite how I meant it to be given. But she gave it to him. And I'm sure, I know, she accepted how he wanted it to be used. And that's the point, gang is that when you and I can learn to give of ourselves, and again, we're not just talking about perfume and and, and possessions here, but it involves that. But when you can learn to give your time, your talents, your treasures, your heart, all of who you are to God first, the cool thing is he's gonna use it as he sees fit. And you've learned the difference between God-based giving and need-based giving. I I was thinking this week, I I knew at this point, I'm looking at some of your faces and I can tell by the look on your faces that you're kind of getting this kind of knot. And and part of that is probably my failure as a teacher, but I knew that would happen. And so I thought, what can I do to help them understand the difference between what we're going to call from this point out, GBG, God-based giving, and MBG, need-based giving. And, uh, and so I put a little chart up here on the, on the monitor. Let's look at this, and, and we'll try to get as tight as we can. Let, let's look at four distinctions between the two, and maybe this will help you understand it. Uh, God-based giving focuses on God and might include some needs that you think should be met. But need-based giving focuses on needs and might or might not include God. <laughs> Huge difference. And I, and I see this happen all the time in the church. I see people, so we're talking about a minute, engage in, in God-based giving, and, and, and they bring it to God, and they say, well, maybe, Lord, we should use it for this or use it for that, and he directs how it should be used, and sometimes it'll meet the needs that you thought initially, but sometimes not. But then I see a lot of well-meaning Christians focus on the needs around them, and again, it's a good thing to do, and they might consult God, and they might not. Let's carry this even further. Here's a second thing on the distinction between them. God-based giving, think about this with me, ultimately meets needs in the best way. Why? Because you've taken it first to God. You've taken your time and your talents and your treasures. You've laid them at his feet and said, you direct me in this God. And so you know then, if the God of the universe is directing how you use all that he's blessed you with, then it's going to meet the needs around you in the best way. Amen? Oh, that was pathetic. Amen? It really is true. Some of you are not convinced of this yet because you go, I've never really consulted God on these things. Well, that's what we're trying to change today. That's the adjustment. Because you see, here's the problem with need-based giving. 
it meets needs. <laughs> Again, it's a good thing. Let me ask you a question. If Mary had listened to them, halfway through pouring out the perfume and said, oops, gosh, you're right. Let's give now 12,000 grand because I just poured 12,000 on Jesus, but let's give 12,000 grand to the poor. Would that have met a need, yes or no? Of course it would. It's just that here is the problem with that kind of thinking. Now let's go to the third thing. And that's that when you engage in God-based giving, it runs no risk of missing God and his leading. But if all you do is need-based approach to the problems around you, you run a great risk of missing God and his leading. Because you see, God didn't agree with Judas. <laughs> God didn't agree with the disciples. It's not that God doesn't care about the poor. <laughs> it's just that in this instance, Jesus had another use for the, for the beautiful gift that Mary was bringing him. And because she took it to him, he did not miss, she did not miss his leading in her life. And as we've seen, it was even different than how she wanted it to be used. And at the end of the day, here's what you're going to find is that God-based giving is very fulfilling to the soul, whereas need-based giving can lead to frustration and disappointments. When I was first learning about this stuff years ago, I uh, was reading a, a, a book by Bob Buford. Buford's a, a, a Texas a millionaire, billionaire, whatever, uh, who got saved in the early 70s. He was in media and, and it made a lot of dough. God had blessed him uh, really well. And when he got saved and became a Christian, he wanted to up the ante on philanthropy and meeting needs. And so he tells a story of how he went to his pastor and said, you know, hey, I got this money I want to give. It. And the pastor said, well, let's build a steeple on the church. And so they built this beautiful steeple on their church or some type of artifact. I don't remember the story exactly. They built something on the church. And, and, and he tells a story that after that huge project was done, he never felt more empty. He, he said he, he realized in his first attempt to, to give to God, he hadn't really consulted God. He just met a need. And it wasn't really the need that God wanted him to meet. And ever since then, Buford has helped literally probably thousands, if not tens of thousands of, of people of means understand how to seek God to engage in God-based giving. In fact, one of the things that he, he, he's at least used to do, I don't know if he does anymore, is that he'd get some wealthier people you know, together and he'd say, okay, let's just he's throw 50 grand in the pot, which for a wealthy person, I guess, is not a lot of money. For me, I'd be taking out a second mortgage. But you know, just throw 50 grand in the pot and then he said, and for the next month, we're simply going to pray over that 50 grand. And let's learn to hear God and ask God what he wants us to do with that. Do you see what he's trying to do there? It's engaging in God-based giving rather than just need-based giving. Because you see, the problem is the needs are always going to be there. Jesus is right. The real issue is, is where does God want us to direct? Now, again, not just our money, but all of our lives. You see, there really is an adjustment going on in this story, guys. It's very subtle when you look closely, but it's very real. And Jesus is simply trying to get us to see that we need to first and foremost go to God with all of who we are and allow him to direct even something as simple as our giving. And I know how some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, man, this is really good. I mean, I like this and I think I can do this. And it sounds even awfully spiritually romantic and scintillating. And, you know, it's just me and God and, and I love it. And, and I think you're onto something there if you're thinking that way. But I want to pop your bubble right now. And, and, and here's what you need to also see in this story is that when Mary engaged in this God-based giving, do you notice that nobody else got it or, apply, or applauded around her? In other words, what strikes me is how alone Mary felt 
in her giving. Did, did you pick up on that? I mean, here she is giving this amazing gift to Jesus and, and, and everybody else is going, you're crazy lady. Well, why are you doing that? You should be doing this with it. Aren't Christians really good at that? They always tell you what you should do. And he's saying, you should be doing this with it. And Mary, you got to believe, is confused at that point until Jesus jumps in and says, nah, this lady's got it exactly right. This is exactly what I need her to be doing it. It's just that there was a cost. You guys need to see it was a cost for Mary to follow God here, as there always is in our lives. You know, I'm seeing this play out right before us in a, in a story uh, that's in our culture right now. About, oh, probably two or three years ago, I, I started realizing that the owners of Hobby Lobby, you guys know what Hobby Lobby is? Raise your hand if you know what Hobby Lobby is. I, I, I've never been to a Hobby Lobby. My wife goes, I don't know what, I assume it has something to do with hobbies and that they have a lobby. I don't know because I've never been there. But I've read a lot of articles on the Green family who owns it because they are strong Christians. They love the Lord. They go back generations. They stand up for their values. And God's really blessed them. The revenues alone of Hobby Lobby this last year were $3.7 billion. That's a lot of money to make. And, and God has blessed them in that. And the Green family being very mature, uh, this is not by way of an infomercial for Hobby Lobby, this is just an example, being very mature, they, uh, they want to give their money uh, back as much as they can to the Lord. And so they've engaged in a lot of what could arguably be God-based giving. They sought the face of God and what he wants them to do. And about six years ago, they, they, they started engaging in a project that was just really audacious. Some of you might have heard of it. They, just six years ago, they started buying up all around the world, uh, any and all biblical artifacts that they could buy. Yeah, I, I mean, like they would buy old uh, scraps of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They would buy old King James Bibles, like as close to 1611 as you can find. They would buy old what we call codexes, which are Greek manuscripts of the Bible from just a few centuries after Jesus. They even bought Elvis's first Bible. I mean, they just started buying as much biblical artifacts in fact, get this, over the last six years, they have bought 40,000 biblical artifacts to the tune of $800 million. They have the largest private collection of biblical artifacts uh, known today, private collection. And now they're building a private museum that will be open to the public. They're building a museum in, uh, in, in Washington, D.C., get this, it's eight stories high, it's 400,000 square feet, it's costing $50 million to build, and it's going to open up hopefully next year, and it's going to be called the Museum of the Bible. And its only purpose is to chronicle the last 2,000 years of how the Bible has been transmitted to us because they want to protect the integrity of the Bible. And all told, at the end of the day, they're going to spend over a billion dollars to get this museum off the ground. Now, here's my question for you. What do you think Judas and the disciples would have thought of that? <laughs> like, if they were freaking out over a $24,000 bottle of perfume... What do you think they would think about spending a billion bucks on historical artifacts and putting them in a museum? I shudder to think what they would have thought. They probably would have said, can you imagine how many wells we could dig in Africa with that money? 
Can you imagine how many people we could evangelize in lost parts of the world for that money? See, if you're only focused on need-based giving, that's your answer to stuff like that, right? It is. I got that when we did our Compelled by Grace vision. God love a lot of you, but some of you came up to me and said, well, you know, we could use this money for this. You know, I go, yeah, you're right. But, but and I, again, I didn't try to be arrogant about it, but we were on our knees. We were praying to God for the vision and future of our church as an elder team. And again, we could be wrong. We got feet of clay, but we heard God say, do this. And I look at the Green family, and again, if God blessed me with a billion bucks, would I use it for that? I don't know. I love the word of God, but I don't think my vision will be a museum. But I got to believe that they've heard God, amen? And even if you don't think they have, you got to give them the benefit of the doubt. Why? Because what they're doing is gutsy. What they're doing is right. What they're doing is God-based giving. And that's what we're learning in this story. And you know one of the cool things about God-based giving <laughs> is that sometimes we'll even tell you to do things with your resources that you never thought you should do with them. I'm reticent to give you this challenge. Let's stop talking about money. Let's now talk about your talents and, and your time. I'm reticent to give you this illustration here, but you know many of you serve God with the talents that you've been given. I love you for that. You, you serve in our children's ministry or our, our, our teen ministry or your ushers or your greeters or your men's ministry, women's ministry. You might serve in neighborhood ministries down in the city or Phoenix Rescue Mission. Or I mean, there's so many places we serve, but I sometimes wonder if we're serving simply because there's a need or if because you really gave your talents over to God. But wouldn't that be a risky thing for all of us to evaluate? Now, again, please don't take that and tell Ryan that you're quitting children's ministry tomorrow because that would not be a good thing. You need to follow through on your commitment. But I, I wonder how many of us have simply engaged in need-based service rather than simply taking all of who we are to God and saying, here I am, what do you want me to do? And some of you go, well, I, I don't hear God like that. I mean, I, God doesn't talk to me like that, you know, and I, I just don't know if he'd say anything. Well, well guess what? Because I had somebody say it to me last night, Here, here's the risk you run. The worst thing that could happen is that you don't hear anything. And at least when that happens to me, and it does, I'll say, thanks for nothing, God. I brought this to you, and I, and I asked you to speak. You didn't say anything. You know what God says to me in my spirit? He says, well, when I'm ready to say something, I'll say something. Until then, just keep doing what you're doing. So that's the worst thing that could happen to you. But see, here's what I know about God. I wonder if you truly went to him wide open, wide open and said, here I am, Lord. I'm giving this to you. I'm giving this to you. I wonder if he might not say something to you as he did to Mary about what he wants you to do with the talents that he has given you. Maybe he'll give you a vision. <laughs> Maybe ask you to build a museum of the Bible or something like that. Who knows? But you're engaging in what he wants you to do. And here's what I also know. It, it really works with our time. It really works with our time. I, I think one of the most precious commodities you and I have, even at an upper crust town like Scottsdale, is, is the use of our time. You only got 24 hours a day. You only got seven days a week. You only got 30, 28 to 31 days a month. You only got 365 days a year. And, and, and if you're lucky, you got 80 to 100 years on planet Earth. And this is why the Bible says, make the most of every opportunity. Or as one translation says, make the most of your time. And you and I need to do that. And yet here's where we have to be careful. 
is that our time needs to be God-directed, not just need-directed, or you will end up in the loony bin. I promise you. I'm going to wrap up before our elder fund offering by telling you a very personal story from me. And it's always a risk when I do this. I mean, many of you send me texts and stuff saying, oh, thank you for being vulnerable and all that. And I, I appreciate that because I feel that, you know, Paul the Apostle said, follow me as I follow Christ. And so I think there's value in that. But it's hard for me to be vulnerable with you guys. It really is. And uh, so, so bear with me on this. This is very real in, in my life lately. But it's such an amazing journey the Lord has taken me through. And it might help you on this idea of God-based giving with your time. I'm not gonna tell you all the gory details, but um, just suffice it to say that I lead a very busy life like many of you do. And in the ministry, there are some unique pressures. I wouldn't say it's necessarily all the more pressures, but there's unique pressures that a pastor feels because of the people intensity of it, maybe the spiritual battle. And a lot of pastors struggle with drivenness. Some pastors struggle with laziness. You never want to hire somebody like that, but you always want to err on the side of drivenness. But a lot of pastors struggle with drivenness. We try to do too much uh, with the time that we have. And there's a great danger in that because if you fall into that and you keep there, you will eventually experience what we call burnout and your love for God will be lost and you're going to get really ticked at the people you serve. So it never ends well when that happens. And I try to watch my soul on that. I try to monitor my life, but I'm a man, which means I'm not usually in touch with my feelings and my machinations and things like that. And my wife's a good barometer there, but I'm good at sneaking things by her. And so I'm not always aware of those things. And about four years ago, when we started our Compelled by Grace journey, I went into it very tired. I wouldn't admit it at the time. In fact, we had a consultant in front of the whole staff ask me in front of everybody. He said, Jamie, it's going to take a lot out of you to do this Compelled by Grace journey. Are you healthy? Do you have it in you? And what am I going to say to that in front of the whole staff? Uh, so I, 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 I said, yes. And I believed that at the time, but in hindsight, I realized that, you know, our church for the first five years, we had a lot of little internal battles here, and we were trying to right the ship, and it takes more of a chunk out of you than you realize. So I, I went into this compelled by grace thing tired. But you know, when you're up against the wall, what do you do? Come on, men and, and women, we know this. When you're up against the wall, you put your hand to the plow, as Jesus said, and you start to till the field, and you don't look back. And so for three years during compelled by grace, that's about what I did and I met with a lot of people. I had a lot of meetings. I, uh, I, I basically lived a pretty out of control uh, pace for three years here at our church. And again, at the time, it's like the frog in the kettle. I didn't know what it was doing to my soul. As I look back now, I was you know, doing about 25, maybe sometimes 30 appointments every week. And then I'm having to come up with a, a killer sermon that you all like. And then I'm sitting on three boards outside the church. And I'm not trying to whine. All you guys are busy too. But I just realized that I was, I, was, I was really going at a pace that was unsustainable. And here's the real tragedy is that I was giving, I was not giving God almost any due in my life. I, I wasn't having quiet times anymore. I'm ashamed to admit that. I'd get up every day at 6.30 and I'd have my first appointment at 6.30, my second appointment at 8, and then I'd come into the office at 9.00. And I was just, you know, going like crazy, thinking I'm doing the Lord's work. And here's the subtlety I was. But some of you have experienced this during that three-year period. It was a very long period. It was slowly, literally destroying my soul. And I didn't even know it at the time. I was getting depressed more so than I ever thought I could. I was angry. 
I didn't show it to you guys. I mean, I'm not dumb, but I'd be driving down the road, somebody would cut me off, and I, I'm ashamed. I, I think to myself, if I had a baseball bat, I might just go after you. That would be good, right? <laughs> Pastor goes after somebody. I, but I, I understood road rage like I never had. And, and again, I was ashamed in my spirit of those things. And I'd say to Kim, you know, what's going on with me? I just something ain't right. And, and again, I'm, I'm confused by all this because I'm doing the Lord's work and and finally, about a year ago, and again, this is hard for me to admit, but I, I, I hit a wall. It was literally last fall. As we were bringing the completion to Compelled by Grace, I, I just was so miserable in my soul. And I, and I hit a wall, and I was on a retreat with the elders, and I just let the floodgates go, and I just confessed to them for the first time that I'm living an out-of-control life, I'm angry, I'm depressed, and I said, there's some really bad behaviors I've gotten into. And they're going, oh, no, no, like what? And I said, well, here's what's happening. I said, at one in the morning when Kim's asleep and I can't sleep because I'm so hurting, I'm getting up and I'm getting on my computer. And they're going, oh, no. And I said, and I'm looking at church want ads at one in the morning. They were thankful I didn't say what, that I was looking at. Yeah, I wasn't. Thank God I wasn't. But you know, I would argue that for a pastor, hurting church one ads are a form of pornography. Because what I was basically doing, and I know this is intense for some of you, is that I was actually not even looking to God. I was just saying, how, and again, I'm, I'm running a risk sharing this with you, but I, I was like thinking, how can I get out of here? And again, it wasn't your fault. This is all on me. And I didn't even realize at the time. I just was, I was so overburdened. Oh, this is hilarious in hindsight, but I was looking at church want ads in Nebraska of like really small churches that wanted a pastor, and I know I'm being judgmental, but that wanted a pastor to help them coast until the second coming. I mean, that's basically what they were looking for. And I thought, you know, that sounds so enticing. And I thought, I, I, I wouldn't have to do a lot. I mean, like, I, you know, I, I'd have a woman, I did, I picked, I'd have a woman come to church and I'd say, where's your husband? And she'd say, well, he's a farmer and he doesn't like God. And I'd go, I'll take care of that one. And I'd go and I'd knock his butt off the tractor and I'd say, you need God. And then I'd go home and watch NCIS. I mean, that just sounded like a wonderful existence. And I'm dreaming about this stuff and I'm going in my spirit. And I think, you know, we laugh at it, but I go, this is not healthy at all. And I'm not connecting with God and I'm, I'm the pastor of the church. And so last November with the elders, I just let it all out. And in moment, times of tears, I mean, it was really serious. I confessed to them where I was at spiritually. And we have such amazing elders. We're up in Flagstaff on a retreat. And you know what the first thing they did was? What do you think the first thing they did was? They prayed. They just said, let's pray for our pastor, and they prayed for me. And then over the next couple of months, a couple of the lead elders and me, we developed a recovery plan. I felt like an alcoholic. They developed a recovery plan. I was a churchaholic. And we started to develop a plan that could sustain me through my 50s because one of the things I shared with them is that I'm not going to live my 50s like I live my 40s. I still got a lot in me. I don't want to be a slacker. I want to work hard. I mean, that's always going to be my tendency. But I, but I have to develop a pace. I didn't even know it at the time because I hadn't studied John 12. I, I needed to develop a God-based approach to my time and my giving. As I sought God, we've made a lot of changes in my work here. I'm still your senior pastor, but we have other staff doing some other things. We're hiring a key position uh, for executive pastor that we're getting down to the short strokes on. We'll hopefully announce that to you here soon. We've been at it for eight months. But one of the biggest changes we made that's been life-giving but costly 
has been that the elders asked me to not come into the office before nine, and they asked me to not have any appointments at Good Egg during that time, but to use that time to be with who? God. And if there was a close second, they said you can be with Kim. <laughs> but the reality was to spend your morning hours, I get weepy just talking about this, reconnecting with God. And don't feel guilty about it. Chalk that up as work if you want to. But spend those morning hours once again with the Lord. And honestly, here's the kind of shape I was in when we agreed to do that last January. I honestly thought, I'm not sure this is really going to do it because it's just a few hours and I'm really hurting. And I didn't, you know, when you're caught in that tornado, you don't know what the future is going to be. But I said, it sounds like a good thing to do. And I started last January reconnecting with God every morning. And I'm not talking for like 10 minutes. Some of you read the little daily bread, say your prayer, move on. No, this is like, this is not that. This is robust time with God in which I was reading uh, an old-time commentary through the Gospel of John and meditating on it and praying, at times even singing and just connecting with the Lord and, and then taking maybe a walk with my wife. And here's what happened, gang. And again, some of you could have predicted this. I couldn't see it then. But even after a few short months, something started to change in my spirit. Some of you noticed it. Some of you actually said to me last spring, you know, something's changing in your, your preaching. Like, you, you seem more free. You seem more passionate. And, and I was like, did the elders ask you to say that, you know what I mean? Because they're worried about me. And, 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 and some of you noticed it. And, and, and I started to notice it. And through giving my time over to God and, and giving my schedule over to him and prioritizing him, I was just like Mary, pouring that expensive bottle of perfume on Jesus' head and feet. I found myself starting to reconnect with Jesus. And it affected my preaching. And here was the cost. The cost was is that I had 10 less appointments every week. And if you don't think there's a cost for that as a pastor, you don't understand my world. Those are 10 people that I'm not meeting with anymore. And I got to tell you, I felt that one. But you know what the difference was? And again, I know I'm being very vulnerable, but, but before, again, during Compelled by Grace, it got so bad that I'd be meeting with people. And I'm ashamed of this. But I'd be meeting with like Scotty. Scotty called me and said, I need to meet about my marriage. So I'd be walking to my appointment with Scott and I'd be going, oh God, just get me through this next appointment, please. That, that's what I would pray. Just God, I feel, I've, I've, I'm just, I, I just, help me to listen to the guy. Help me to get through it. And that's such a terrible place to be as a minister. And, and starting last March, I'd have appointments, less of them, but with a guy like Scotty, and, and I'd be going into them going, Lord, I can't wait <laughs> to meet with my brother and hear what he has to say, even though he's hurting. And, and, and I'm going to be dialed into him, and I, and I just, I can't wait to see what you're going to do in this interaction. And, and, and I started to feel the life come back. So I had less appointments, but the ones I had were tons more life-giving. I felt I had a lot more to offer. In fact, when I went into my study time away this last uh, summer, uh, the last three years, I've gone into it just crashing and burning. And I'd spend six weeks away, and I'd get all the sermons prepared for the next year, and I'd come back, and within two weeks, I'd be sucked dry again. This year, I went into my study, and within two weeks of being in Michigan there, and this was a bad thing to say to Kim, I said, I could go back to Scottsdale right now. And she didn't take it the way that I meant it. But I, I meant that I feel so rejuvenated coming into this. And, and, and I got the entire year mapped out for our preaching, and I'm establishing vision for the next 10 years for our church, and I finally feel like I'm back. But the only reason I'm back, gang, 
is because I gave my time, I gave my talents, I gave my treasure, I gave all of me back to God. We're gonna wrap up here in a minute with a song, and I know that our venues and campuses will too, about surrender. And, and you know, sometimes, I don't know you, I feel like a hypocrite when I'm singing that song. I, I mean, how do you sing, all to thee, my precious Savior, I surrender all. Don't you feel like a hypocrite doing that sometimes? See, see, I don't think we need to feel like a hypocrite doing that. I think we need to do that. I think we need to get to the point in our life where we say, enough, time out, I'm thrown in the white towel, I'm tired of this need-based approach to life. It's a God-based approach from this point on. It's a small adjustment for some of you. God and people are very close in your life, as it should be. Jesus is saying, let's move the needle over one degree. Let's focus on God and let's see what he does. He just might bring your spirit back as he has done for me. So we're going into our elders fund offering here at our venues. Let's pray. And we're going to sing one last song. Let's give it to the Lord and ourselves as well. Father, I thank you for just this amazing story of a woman who had the courage to lay it all before you. A woman who took her most costly possession, really all of herself, and laid it at the feet of Jesus. And Father, there will be a lot of naysayers when we start to do this in our life. A lot of people who will say, well, you could have done this with that, you could have done that with that. But after this story, Lord, we know better. And God, I want to pray very specifically for these dear people here. There are people here today, Lord, who uh, desperately needed to hear what we're talking about because they need to adjust just one degree and focus their sights upon you. Maybe it's a thing they're giving over to you. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's their kids. Maybe it's their talents and time, as I've talked about. Lord, we all have something to give over. We want to be God-based from this point out, not just need-based. So help us to do that, God. May we honor you with our very lives. Receive our offering now. Receive our worship. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen.